0: We're going to talk about the history of Israel tonight, um, part two. Uh, we are going. Mitchell is so excited; he loves history. So he told me the other night, "You did a great job tonight, Dad," because he just loves history. So um, tonight we're going to cover the period of the United Kingdom. Now that's not Great Britain; that's that's the United Kingdom of Israel. So uh, we start with Saul. A couple of things that I probably want to mention um, from last time that I don't know if. I, I don't know if it was, if there's a common misunderstanding that I kind of want to clear up on this. And that is that the, the period of the judges and the period of the conquest, we often look at them, and, and I kind of gave you a timeline, and I said, this is the period of the conquest, this is the period of the judges, and it almost looks like this happens in a certain time frame, and then it's over. And then this next time frame begins almost like it's a completely different thing. Like you you go to bed one day and it's one way and then you wake up a different day and it's a whole new era. That's not exactly how things go in history. Eras seem to overlap and blend into one another. And so the period of the conquest is when most, much of the conquest happens, especially the book of Joshua. But there's still conquest that is not done until David is king. We'll hear in a little bit about the city of Jerusalem. David is the one that takes Jerusalem. So the, there's a lot of conquest, and even some areas are never conquested at all. The area of the Philistines never fully comes in Israelite control, even though it's part of the promised land. And so so the conquest wasn't just this 15 year period. There was a period of of heavy conquests in that 15 years, but then there was ongoing efforts beyond that throughout the period of Judges and even into uh, the reigns of Saul and David even. So, so don't think of this as like blocks of this happens and then it's over and it moves to the next block and then it moves to the next block. It's kind of a blending. It, it's a, it's a, it's a fluid kind of thing. You may not realize when you've entered a new era, but sometime later it becomes obvious that, hey, when that happened, everything changed. When Archduke Francis Ferdinand was shot and killed, the world, world was already on the brink of war. That was just what set it over the edge. And so even though that's kind of the start of World War I, there's a lot of stuff going into that moment that make that the start of World War I. So it's kind of a blending thing, okay? Now we can talk about some kings. At the end of uh, the period of Judges, as, as the Judges are kind of coming to a close, Israel is in a bad spot. The neighbors around it, um, the, the local neighbors around Israel are fairly strong, but the massive kingdoms of the ancient Near East are not. They are in a period of heavy decline. Egypt is in decline. Uh, Mesopotamian cultures like Assyria and Babylon are in decline. The Persians have not yet really risen to the stature that they will hold uh, a few hundred years later. So, so there's not really one major world power that's in large control at this time. So there's a lot of skirmishing and there's a lot of of warfare between different groups of people uh, within the region of Palestine. Everyone trying to stake out their territory and, and make a name for themselves. And it's in this purview, Israel has these judges. And as we saw last week in the book of Judges, a lot of them aren't very good judges. You got judges like Samson who gets mad at the drop of a hat. You got judges like Jephthah that says, I'm going to kill the first thing I see when I get home, and it's his daughter. Making rash vows and doing terrible things. We see these all kinds of different problems that are resulting. Eli's sons, uh, oh, Hophni and Phinehas, are wicked. Samuel's sons even are wicked. And so it's at this point they say we we can't survive in this kind of environment with all of these threats all around us if we don't have a king we've got to be a, we've got to have a king like the other nations to lead us into battle to rescue us from our enemies, and so Samuel after some um, after a heart to heart with God where God basically says they're not rejecting you they're they're rejecting me anoint Saul to be king this is about the year ten fifty. Okay? And so for roughly 40 years, until about the year 1010, Saul is king over Israel. This is the height of Philistine power. So the Philistines, we know the Philistines, they're the sea peoples that came from Greece had originally tried to overcome Egypt, but failed. And so they just ran up the coast into uh, uh, coastal Palestine, uh, what we today know as the Gaza Strip. Is the area where they settled, and it's the height of their power. They have advanced weaponry. It's it's during the Iron Age, and Israel doesn't have iron. And as you guys know from playing Minecraft, iron is a very important thing, isn't it? Yeah. But but even outside of Minecraft, in real life, at that point, if you had iron weapons, you had military control. It would be like having drones and having uh, nuclear missiles surface-to-air missiles, and and a complex defense system. Those things that we think of as military technologies today, iron was the technology then. And in fact, at one point in the scriptures, it says that Israel didn't have a single metalsmith in the entire country. They had to rely on the Philistines to sharpen their tools. So, I mean, this this is a legitimate threat. It's also a point where their army is large. They have tons and tons of personnel, tons and tons of advanced weaponry, and they've got lots of chariots. Now, in the mountains, chariots don't do you much good, but in the coastal plains, where the Philistines were, and in much of the area that they tried to overcome, oh, it made a big difference. Having a chariot was a huge advantage. All throughout the reign of Saul, Israel could not overcome Philistines. He he couldn't, he couldn't match them. They were just too powerful. In fact, 1 Samuel 14, 52 tells us that all the days of Saul, there was hard fighting against the Philistines. They just couldn't overcome. Eventually, those same Philistines would cause the death of Saul and Jonathan and some of of the other sons of Saul on Mount Geboah. And that's in 1 Samuel 31. We've been talking about that on Wednesday night. So if you've been here kind of regularly on Wednesday night, you know, we've uh, uh, talked through a lot of this. I mentioned before the major empires, the Hittite Empire was uh, controlled a lot of Asia Minor at that point. They were weak at that time. Mesopotamian empires were weak. Egypt was weak. So there's no real major world power. Saul did get some victories. He won some victories over some of the neighbors, Moab, Edom, Zobah, um, The Ammonite kingdom, we'll talk a little bit more about this with David, but the Ammonite kingdom was a bunch of cities that were kind of loosely federated. And so one city of Ammon would fight against you. Another city would be making treaties with you. Like there was no set, like they didn't, they weren't like the Philistines where they all kind of worked in in unity together. Um, But Zobah was one of those cities and uh, Saul got victories against them. The Amalekites, the key victory there was Nahash. Nahash marches in uh, and takes siege of Jabesh-Gilead, and they say, they say um, we want to we make peace with you. And Nahash says, all right, every man has to have his right eye plucked out. That's, that's my, that's my um, payment for peace. They say, well, give us seven days to think about it, <laughs> right? So they call out and it's Saul. Saul gets the word about what's going on, and it says the Spirit of the Lord filled him. He takes some oxen, and he cuts them in half, and he sends them out to the tribes of Israel and says, if you don't come help us fight off Nahash in this battle, this is what your oxen are going to be like. When you put it like that, how can I refuse? So Israel rallies around Jabesh-Gilead, defeat Nahash the Ammonite, and um, God saves them from that threat. That's, a, that's the city that when Saul died, and they took Saul's uh, head off and took his body and hung it up outside the city of um, Bethshan. It's the men from Jabesh-Gilead that went all night there, grabbed the bodies of Saul and his sons came all the way back home and buried him uh, under a tree so that they wouldn't be publicly humiliated like that. So that's pretty much the reign of Saul, but some key accomplishments. Saul is, because he's the first king, at, at the point where he takes over, the tribes are all disunified. It's this loose association of tribes. There's no real unity. He's one that helps bring unity. And now it's not a great unity. It's a unity that's very fractured and very difficult to hold together, but he at least gets some form of unity going. Something that David, when he eventually becomes king and and, um, unites all of Israel under his reign, he's able to build on what Saul started. The the second thing that's a key we just talked about is the defeat of King Nahash um, in Jabesh Gilead. The major prophet of this time was Samuel. Um, there, are, there are a couple minor prophets that are in there that are, are kind of you know, interspersed here and there, but pretty much Samuel is the main one that, that we get our attention from. And, and the book of 1 Samuel, uh, most of the book of 1 Samuel gives us the story of Saul. Okay? So that's Saul. That gets us to about 1010 AD, and that's when David... Takes charge now. David takes charge in one ten, but in all actuality, he doesn't really take charge in one ten or ten ten. Excuse me, because in, in ten ten, there's two kings. If you'll remember at the beginning of 2 Samuel, Ishbosheth, which is one of the sons of Saul that escaped uh, um, that escaped death uh, in that battle on Mount Gilboa, he is ruling several of the tribes in the north, and Judah is following David. And so you already have a divided kingdom, even at this point. But it wouldn't last very long. Within a couple of years, David had consolidated all the power. Ishbosheth was dead, and David is now the full king of Israel. And so he starts reigning in 1010, but it's not really until about 1008, 1007 that, that he's got all of Israel under his command. He is known, especially for the description, a man after God's own heart. 1 Samuel 13, 14, God is, uh, uh, Samuel is telling Saul that because of his sin, that he would not have a dynasty. He, his sons would not rule. But instead, God was going to put one who was after his own heart to rule after Saul's death. And that's David. So David is anointed of uh, uh, 1 Samuel 15 gives us the anointing of David. And then 1 1 Samuel 16 gives us the anointing of David. And then in chapter 17, he goes and fights Goliath. It's a pretty good resume builder right there, don't you think? Israel during David's reign, um, which was quite a bit after that happened and David took charge. During David's reign, Israel becomes the main power in Palestine. Again, the big uh, uh, historical... Uh, um, empires of the day are weak. They're 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 in very weak condition. They're not able to really control Palestine because of all sorts of things going on within their homelands. And so so Israel is kind of left to grow on its own. And so they take charge, and they subdu- David subdues the Philistines, limits them to a very small bit just along the coast. Very small amount of land compared to what they did have. I don't think David eliminates the Philistines completely because of Achish. If you'll remember, uh, when he was fleeing from Saul, once or twice he ran to Gath. And uh, king, the, Achish was the king of Gath at that point. And Achish treats him fairly well. And so I think out, out of deference to his relationship with Achish, he doesn't completely eliminate the Philistines, but he does severely limit them. Um, he takes control pretty much of all his neighbors. Ammon, he he gets control of. Edom, he's in control of. Moab, he's in control of. Amalek, he's pretty much in control of. Uh, Midian, he's in control of. Syria is, is mostly the Aramaean city-states are in Syria. Many of them, some of them he's in control of. Some of them are just paying him tribute to leave them alone. And so even, even at this point, uh, David has really established through through a very strong sort of, of military presence, he's really established peace in the area. So that led to a lot of friendly relations. Hiram, king of Tyre, is a good example of this. He, he was up in Phoenicia, which is along the northern coast. Uh, modern day Lebanon uh, would be that area. Um, the, uh, some of the Aramaean cities, I think, which one was it? Some of them kind of fought against him, but some of them were with him. And I can't, I, I'm sorry, I'm having a hard time thinking of which ones right now. I believe Zobah was one of the ones that established peace with David uh, so that he, would, he wouldn't come and destroy them too. David's major accomplishments, he did several, but some of the main things, he turned Jerusalem into the political and religious center of Israel. So at that point, Jerusalem was still lived in by the Jebusites, Somewhere in probably around the 990s, maybe 980, somewhere in there, uh, David takes control of Jerusalem, and he brings not only the palace there, the political center, the administrative capital into Jerusalem, he also brings the Ark of the Covenant. And makes it the center of religious life as well. And so he begins this marrying of the political and the religious structure that would really set Israel apart um, during his reign and the reign of Solomon. He also uh, really brought a lot of peace in the area. Again, because the big uh, uh, empires were not so strong, Israel was left to flourish. And as Israel began to flourish, things settled down and there was more peace. David expanded Israel's borders uh, uh, much, much wider than Saul. It's estimated that Israel more than doubled in size from Saul to David. So a dramatic difference. And in that time, he would end up bringing two trade highways. One runs along the coast. It's called the intercoastal or international coastal highway. And then the other runs in the Transjordan, which is so. If you're if you're looking at a map. Here's the Mediterranean Sea. This is Israel. The Jordan River kind of comes down here. Transjordan is this side. There was a highway that ran down all the way to uh, the top of the Gulf of Aqaba, which is one of the two fingers of the Red Sea. Um, Ezion geber is the name of the town there. Um, That highway that would run all the way down there, it's called the King's Highway. And it was a major source uh, of goods from Asia down into southern parts of Africa. Um, it was also, um, the intercoastal highway connected Egypt and, and Asia Minor and much of that as well as Europe. It really, travel, a lot of goods travel along those ways. So there's these two trade highways that are now running through Israel, at least at some point. David also found some time to write like 70-something Psalms. <laughs> yeah, so nearly half the book of Psalms is attributed to David. To me, that's just kind of crazy. He also wrote a lot of songs and other things that aren't in our Bibles, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. But, but David was not all, he wasn't all golden cow. He had some family problems. And it starts in 2 Samuel 11. When David commits adultery with Bathsheba, God says as punishment, the sword will never leave your house not only because he committed adultery with Bathsheba, but because he killed her husband, Uriah, in order to have her as his wife. So since you have shed innocent blood by the sword, the sword will never leave your house. And you have two major rebellions, one by Absalom. Around uh, 975 BC is when Absalom rebels. Uh, 2 Samuel 15 tells the story. We'll get there in a few weeks. And then uh, Adonijah's rebellion in 1 Kings 1 happens just after David dies, but it's a direct result of some of the things that were going on in the family while he was still alive. The major prophet uh, that we need to know of in this era was Nathan. Wasn't the only prophet, but he's the one that's that's really most notable. The Bible books of 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles tell us the story of David. And the book of Psalms relate a lot of that story as well as a lot of the writings of David. Uh, So... So those are are key Bible books to keep in mind there. That brings us to Solomon. David dies. Solomon, through Nathan and Bathsheba, uh, gets coronated as king. Adonijah rebels, but Solomon quickly coalesces the power together, and he is now king of Israel. That happens about 970. He reigns until about 930. And he, of course, is known for his wisdom. This picture is an, an artist's depiction of the trial that I was talking about earlier today, where the, the, the two women are both claiming the baby's theirs. And you can see, if you look right here, it's kind of hard to see, but this guy has a sword, and he's holding the baby up by his foot, about, about to cut him in half. And the, the woman on this side here is pointing like, yeah, do it. And the woman over here is like, no, 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 please stop. And so Solomon is, is rendering his, his wise judgment in this case. David expanded Israel's borders. Solomon expanded them even more. It was so much, in fact, um, I think I've got it on the next slide, but it was so much, in fact, that Israel had influence from the Euphrates River all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula. The height of Israel's power and prosperity come under Solomon. He makes treaties with everybody. He's making treaties with the world powers. He's making treaties with neighbors. He's making treaties with faraway places. Sheba would have been in the south of the Arabian Peninsula. He was making treaties with them. He was making treaties in Ethiopia. He was making treaties uh, uh, to share goods from Spain. He was making treaties all over the place. He had horses coming down from Kew, which was in southeastern Asia Minor. He was he was he was getting stuff from all over the place coming through Israel, and because they were coming through those trade routes, Israel was getting a lot of prosperity as a result. The major powers they, they were more more uh, worried about internal affairs, and so again they're still weak. It's not really until the eight hundreds that we the the late the mid to late eight hundreds that we see a world power really get strong enough to have any influence in the region. And that, by the way, would be Assyria. Neighboring countries uh, are cooperating with Israel because these guys are the rich guys and they have the best army around, so uh, we better cooperate with them, right? So um, there are some rebellions late in Solomon's reign. Hiram, king of Tyre, is one that rebels. Uh, Rezin, is one that rebels. There's a couple of others that the Bible mentions. What did he do? Well, he expanded Israel's borders. So Israel is at its biggest influence during the reign of Solomon. He also built a temple for the Ark of the Covenant. First Kings 6 through 8, 2 Chronicles 3 through 7, both uh, give us the story of the building. Uh, they go into some of the details about the, the furnishings of the temple and, and how those are built and and how uh, Solomon prays uh, bless, and blesses the people and, and all of these great things that happen uh, in the building of the temple. He also led not just the temple building, but some extensive building projects throughout all of Israel. He built up cities. Uh, he built up fortresses. He, he improved conditions in a lot of ways. However, like any rich king who got way too ambitious, he started running out of money, and that would soon create some problems. One of the problems that it created is he had to start using labor. He ran out of people to to work. He he couldn't. He didn't have the access to the crews to do the work. Like, um, and if you read in the scriptures, you'll see this where sometimes the Israelites couldn't kick someone out, so they forced them into labor. They that so they subjected them to forced labor. You know, or, or this group of people, the the. I think it's the Gibeonites that uh, fool Israel into thinking that they're from a faraway land, but they're really from from within the promised land. And so they fool the Israelites into a treaty. And so as, as part of the treaty, they end up as forced labor for the Israelites. You see this several times. The problem is by Solomon's day, there's not enough forced labor. There's way too many projects going on. And so Israelites have to start bearing the burdens. Israelites have to start doing the work. Israelites get constricted constricted into doing the king's bidding and and doing the manual labor, the hard labor of the king. And uh, one of of the guys that was particularly notable is Jeroboam, the son of Naboth. And you'll see him uh, make an appearance shortly because he's going to be a key player in what's to come. In addition to that, he also imposed heavy taxes on people. And that heavy tax burden, that heavy work burden, would end up being a major reason why the kingdom wouldn't remain united after his death. He also began to adopt foreign gods. Solomon had 700 wives, 300 concubines, many of them from the king's courts of foreign lands. Many of them were were simply done because of treaties. We make a treaty. Part of the treaty is we become family. Because it's really hard. It's really hard to do your father-in-law wrong and then face them at the Thanksgiving dinner table, right? It's hard to do that. So by being family, it made the covenant that much stronger. So that's what they would do. The problem is those wives brought their gods. They brought their idols. They brought their pagan worship practices, and Solomon began to adopt them. Those factors together plus one more I think, really led to the problems that divided the kingdom. And that is right here. Look at the prophets. There are no major prophets in the time of Solomon. Here is the wisest king, supposedly in the history of the world, and there's nobody counseling him with the word of God. That's a problem. That's why he started running after these false gods. And I think that's a big reason why Israel, why Israel would never be the same. You can read about Saint, uh, Solomon in First Kings one through eleven, Second Chronicles one through nine. He wrote the book of Proverbs. Most of it, he compiled it together. At least, if he didn't write the proverbs in there, he wrote, he compiled them. He gathered them from all sorts of different sources. And he most likely, though we are not sure, just because it's just you know the there's some difficulties with this, but he most likely wrote the books of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. So Solomon dies, and there's this guy, uh, Rehoboam is his son. Rehoboam is going to take over the kingdom, and when Rehoboam goes to take over the kingdom, uh, uh, Jeroboam comes back into play. Remember, Jeroboam was a taskmaster. He was one of the ones that was assigned to making the Israelites do what they were supposed to do, like making these folks work hard and, and do the right work. And Eventually, he rebelled against Solomon. He said, I can't do this, and this isn't right. So he rebels against Solomon, and as, a, as I guess, uh, because he can't, there's not really much, much room for him to really fight against Solomon, he ends up fleeing to Egypt. Well, after Solomon's death, word gets to Jeroboam that Solomon has died. He comes back into Israel, and the northern uh, most of the northern tribes, elders from the tribes, come to Jeroboam, and they say, "This we've got to do something about this." So Jeroboam leads them in talking to Rehoboam, and they say, "Please, your father put heavy restrictions on us. They, he 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 imposed heavy taxes. He made us do incredibly hard work. Please lighten our load." Rehoboam says, "Let me let me think about it. Come back come back in a couple of days." And so they agree, and he begins to seek counsel. He first asks the counselors of his father, wise old men. And they say, these people are right. You know, your father was a little bit, a little bit crazy about all this stuff. You should lighten their load. Rehoboam thinks about it a little bit more, and then he goes to his friends. And he says, what do you guys think? And the friends say, oh, uh-uh. No, they want a lighter load. You put a heavier load on them. You show them who's boss. Rehoboam foolishly does that. And now Israel's broken. That's it. They can't, as soon as he refuses the request, the northern tribes say, what have we to do with Judah then? They split off from him. They, They appoint Jeroboam as their king. And then Rehoboam says, oh, is that how you want to do it? He starts gearing up for war. He's going to attack the north and make them come back to him. But then this this little known prophet by the name of Shemaiah comes to him with instructions from God and says, go home. No, no, this is is of God. Leave them be. And so they decide to go home instead. And now we have a divided kingdom. If If you look at the map, I know it's hard to read but the green is the north, the purple here is the south. So the green is the kingdom of Israel and the purple is the kingdom of Judah. And now we have a divided kingdom.